Hey, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus. The first book of the Bible is Genesis. The second book is Exodus. We've just finished up a series on marriage. Next Sunday is going to be a great Sunday. You don't want to miss it. Missionaries Greg and Beth Ann Carlson are going to be with us. We've been supporting the Carlsons for many years. Uh, these are Wycliffe Bible translators who have been in Vanuatu for over 20 years. Fascinating people, wonderful, enduring ministry that they've had in Vanuatu. You don't want to miss it. They'll be teaching both in the Sunday school class, Matt Williamson's Sunday school class, and then Greg will be preaching in here. Uh, after that, starting on the 20th, we're going to do 10 weeks of just some good, solid Christian doctrine, if you will. So 10 straight weeks of just some of the basics of the stuff that you and I should believe. But this morning, I wanted to do one sermon after the marriage series just to focus in on those of us who are parents. If you're not a parent here this morning, would you please just listen and pray for all of us that are? A few weeks ago, I got to go to Honduras with Compassion International. Uh, several years ago, I got to go with them to Africa on a lead pastor vision trip, and this trip to Honduras was the same thing. It was lead pastors from across the country who got to go and see Compassion International on the ground and if you will, under the hood. You get to see this ministry up close. And uh, what am I trying to say? But anyway, you get to ask all the questions you wanna ask just to see it, to learn more about it, with the hopes of encouraging your people to sponsor kids through Compassion. Now most of you know a bunch of us do. Uh, my family, we sponsor two Compassion kids, one in Togo, Africa, one in Honduras, and I got to meet her, which was really, really cool. Uh, right out here in the foyer, you know, the pictures up on the wall are the children that many of us sponsor. One of the things we learned on that trip, I think I had heard it before, but boy, it just was driven home to me. The best research coming out of America is that the average church kid, the average church kid, on average, gets 40 hours of discipleship a year. 40 hours of discipleship a year. 40 hours of teaching and training in biblical, theological, and spiritual truth. Now, one of the things they were bragging on about compassion was that the average compassion kid, and there's 2.1 million of them spread all over the world, gets over 400 hours of discipleship every year. They get those kids a lot during the week or on the weekend. They get them for several, several hours. And no matter what they're teaching them, whether it's how to read, how to write, how to show respect, and the like, it's all biblically grounded curriculum. And so you left there going, wow. In addition to that, all of the incredible things that Compassion does, you go, what an incredible ministry. It just reinforced to me that, yes, sponsoring Heisey in Honduras is a good thing, and sponsoring Benjamin in Togo is a good thing. So I would say to any of you who don't sponsor children, 
If you're thinking about investing some dollars into a ministry that helps kids in poverty, in Jesus' name, compassion's a good one. But more than that, I thought, oh man. What an incredible responsibility we parents have. On average, your kids and mine, about 40 hours a year in biblical, theological, spiritual training. Your kids and mine, how many hours in math, in science, in history, in economics, in geography, all, if you will, mandated by the state, along with all of the hours spent watching on Netflix or playing video games or in extracurricular activities and more. Listen, I'm not picking on you, it's my kids too. How many countless hours and how comparatively few hours on what I think all of us would agree is the most important, most essential stuff in the world. How few hours in biblical, theological, spiritual training. While the church does a bit, that 40 hours that the research has done is the 40 hours that are spent generally in church activity. Whether it's a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night program or a weekend retreat, whatever it might be, on average, it's 40 hours in church. Compare that maybe to what I'm reading, the 3,000 hours that we parents have per year with our children. I want to show you a text that makes me think maybe Satan's laughing at us. In Exodus, if you know the story, in Exodus chapter 1, the family of Jacob is down in Egypt. Jacob, his 12 sons, their wives, and their children, they're about 70 in number. But God is beginning to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to the patriarchs that he would make them a father of a great nation, that like the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea, so would his descendants be. And so you read in chapter 1, verse 7, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. And if you know the story, a new Pharaoh, a king in Egypt, arose who wasn't very fond of this growing nation. And he got paranoid and began to make things very, very difficult on them. And yet at the end of chapter 1 and verse 20, the people multiplied and became very mighty. Despite the efforts of Pharaoh, the people continued to grow and multiply. Anticipating what would come of this, God brought a man on the scene. In chapter 2, it's the birth of Moses and his early life. But you see at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. 
And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. I love this verse. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. You ever wonder if God hears your prayers? He does. And more than that, he doesn't only hear your prayers, but he sees you, and he remembers his promises to you, and he takes note of you, and he works on your behalf as he does in chapter 3. He appears to Moses, reveals himself to him as Yahweh, and his intentions to use Moses to lead the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and to bring them to the promised land. And if you know the story in chapters 3 and 4, Moses isn't so sure about that. He doesn't think he's up to the task. And yet God gets his man. And so in verse 31 of chapter 4, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshiped. They were so thankful that God had heard their cry. He had seen their affliction. He had remembered his promises to them. He took note of them and began to act on their behalf. He raised up a leader, Moses, who was going to take them and lead them out of the land. Chapter 5 and following is Moses, along with his brother Aaron, going to Pharaoh and demanding that he let the people go. God's intention was that the fathers and the mothers and the children and the livestock and all that belonged to them would leave Egypt and come to the mountain to worship him, to submit their lives to him. And yet time and time and time again, Pharaoh is going to say no. And along the way, Pharaoh is going to offer to the people of God some compromises. One of those compromises is the basis of the sermon this morning. First of all, Pharaoh essentially says, you can't go at all. In chapter 5, Verse 1, afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, if you know the story, Pharaoh is about to get to know the Lord. But he essentially says, No, you're lazy. And he makes things even harder on the people. Chapter 7, Moses and Aaron come before him again in these initial asks. And Pharaoh says, no. And then in chapter 7, verse 14 and following, you begin to see what are called the plagues, right? And there will be ten of them culminating in the Passover. The first one you see there in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And so it happened. Pharaoh said, no. In chapter 8, the second plague, frogs and lots of them. But at the end of it, Pharaoh said, no. And in chapter 8, verse 16, these gnats or these flies that would just make life miserable. In verse 17, they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And yet Pharaoh said, no. And in chapter 8, verse 20, it will be flies. And things are beginning to heat up a little bit, and Pharaoh will offer his first compromise here. In verse 25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Jump down to verse 28. Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Initially, no, you can't go. Things are getting a little bit tough. You can go, but don't go very far. Moses says, no. Pharaoh said, no. Verse 32, he hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, the fifth plague, disease on the livestock. Verse 13, hail that fell down upon the cattle and upon the crops. And in chapter 10, locusts. These locusts that would come through and just destroy the land. And in verse 8 and following, we see the next compromise. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then Pharaoh said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, or probably the translation is something like, You're going to need the Lord to be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh first says, no, you can't go at all. Things heat up a little bit more. You can go, but don't go very far. Things are getting even tougher. You men can go but not your wives and not your kids. 
The last one will be later in chapter 25 or chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. So the last one is, okay, your kids can go, but not your flocks and not your herds. Now, I might be pressing the application a little bit too far, but I'm not the first to do it. Give me a little bit of grace here. But it's interesting that here is Pharaoh, the enemy of God's people, whom God is calling to worship him. And Pharaoh, the arch enemy of the people of God, saying no. He would love nothing more than for all of us not to serve God at all. Well, if you must go, don't get too serious about it. Don't go too far. Stay in the land. Don't be radical in your service to God. If you have to go, just you men. I want your wives and I want your kids. Well, if you got to take them, let's just keep this a Sunday thing. All that stuff you deal with Monday through Saturday, your livestock, your cattle, your possessions, leave that to me. You and I have an ancient foe, Satan, and his desire is to keep us completely away from Christ. If we're going to follow Christ, don't get too serious about it. If maybe we're going to get serious, he wants our kids. And he wants our Sunday faith to be just that while he takes the everyday stuff of life. Matthew Henry is a great devotional commentator on the Bible. I've told you before, if you don't have a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible, you ought to get it. You can read it online, but it ain't the same as having his book on your shelf. Here's what he said about Exodus chapter 10, verse 10 and 11. In a great passion, Pharaoh curses them and threatens that if they offer to remove their little ones, they will do it at their peril. Note, Satan does all he can to hinder those that serve God themselves from bringing their children in to serve him. He is a sworn enemy to early piety, knowing how destructive it is to the interests of his kingdom. Early piety is, is what? That's when a little kid comes to put their faith in Jesus and love God. He is a sworn enemy to early piety, knowing how destructive it is to the interests of his kingdom. Whatever would hinder us from engaging our children to the utmost in God's service, we have reason to suspect the hand of Satan in it. Just briefly on each of those sentences. Satan seeks to hinder those that serve God from bringing their children to serve him. Presumably, he's lost you, dad and mom. 
you've come to that place where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. And you want to know him. And you want to serve him. You want to follow him. Presumably he's lost you. Maybe he still feels he's got a shot at your kid. Satan seeks to hinder those that serve God from bringing their children to serve him. You can go, but not your little ones. Satan is the sworn enemy of early piety, knowing how destructive it is to the interests of his kingdom. He doesn't want your little kids and mine to come to put their hope and their trust in Jesus and begin to learn the Bible and to begin to learn his truth and his ways in the world. He doesn't want that. If that happens, that child, that young child, has decades of walking with the Lord and growing into maturity and service for him in their classroom and on their ball team and in the theater and wherever it might be that they go. Satan does not want the little ones to know the Lord and be taught in him. Whatever hinders us from engaging our children to the utmost in God's service, we have reason to suspect the hand of Satan in it. Oh, man. Can you think of anything that hinders you, dad and mom, from engaging your children to the utmost in God's service? Lots of things that hinder us. I don't know about you, but that's a scary verse to me. Mitch will take you, or you can head out. But your wife and your kids, no. Almost time to go. But just quickly, dad and mom, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The same enemy of God's people that was inspiring Pharaoh to take out the little ones is still at work today and his desire is to keep you and me from engaging our children with the truth. There's a whole handful of types of parents that you and I might be. I suspect that most of us are in one particular category. At least here's how I learned this. There is, on the one hand, an absent parent. Sadly, for some, this comes through death, but for many, it comes through a divorce. Where either a dad or a mom just isn't there at all, shows up here and there, maybe. I sure hope that's not any of us. 
The second kind is a distant parent. They're under the same roof, but emotionally, spiritually, they're disconnected. They're distant. Some of you have been around here, you've heard me describe my relationship with my dad. My dad's a great man, but it's kind of distant relationship. And I often say I grew up 10 feet from him, maybe five feet. I laid on the couch, he sat in the chair, and we watched TV, I don't know how many hours together. But talked very little, especially about the stuff of life. I hope you're not the absent parent. I hope you're not a distant parent. Here's a third one, the demanding parent. This parent isn't absent, and this parent really isn't distant. They're all in, but they're all in, demanding, 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 demand. Performance is the name of the game, and I'm going to push you to perform. I'm going to demand of you in the classroom, on the field, whatever it might be. Nothing will be good enough. I'm going to keep you on edge son or daughter. I hope that's not you either. I think so often that demanding parent, it has nothing really to do with the kid. It has everything to do with the hopes and dreams of the parent. Here's where I suspect most of us are, and sadly, sometimes I find myself here, if not most of the time. You and I are probably in the involved but visionless parent. Involved but visionless. This is probably a vast amount of the parents in this room and probably in our community. Not absent, not distant, hopefully not demanding too much. Involved. Hang loose, you know? Friends with your kids. Go to the games, cheer them on, check the report card, make sure, you know, they're staying in line, but never, you know. Involved, but visionless. Really not giving much true direction and purpose to our children. And so one that I think it would be great for all of us to move toward is what's been called the involved and strategic parent. This is the parent that says, I'm not only going to be involved, but I also want to be strategic. I want to deposit treasures into the souls of my kids that will bring them life. Yeah, I want them to do good in school. Yeah, I want them to excel in sports or theater or whatever it might be. But life is about so much more, so much more than performance in the classroom or on the field. Life is about so much more than that. And so I want to be strategic about depositing into their souls that which will give them life. And so briefly, boy, briefly, to do that, moms and dads, and let me just lean heavy into the dads. Y'all want a verse? A verse you know, and you don't want me to read, daddies. 
You don't want me to read this verse. I'm going to read it. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Fathers, fathers, bring them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. One author said, fathers have the ultimate responsibility of raising their children in such a way that they will be trained in understanding the essence of the Christian faith and that they will be instructed and admonished on how to live this out. Yeah, this is a, this is a message for daddies and for mamas. But boy, the weight that Paul gives it is on the fathers, the heads, the servant leaders of the home. Briefly, they got to see in us, mamas and dads, they got to see in us life. That the, as it's said in Texas, we might say, the tongue in your shoe lines up with the tongue in your mouth. That what we say is the same life that we live. That when your kiddos and mine look at us, they see us living not a perfect Christian life, they know you're not perfect, but a consistent walk with Christ. And that you are a loving husband and a respectful wife. That you are kind and you are patient. That the life you are calling them to live is the life that you yourself are seeking to live. They need to see in dad and mom character in the way that we speak and in the way that we love and in the way that we show patience and steadfastness in the midst of hard times. They need to see us being generous and see us full of joy in all of life. They need to see dad and mom reading their Bible consistently, going to church consistently, serving the church consistently. They need to see things in us, and they are watching. They need to hear stuff from us. You've heard me share these before. This is pretty good stuff, but I got a little more to add to it. But here's what they need to hear from us. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're good at I love you just the way that you are. I'm proud of you for the way that you treated your sister, for the way that you went and talked to your teacher about that kind of hard thing. I'm proud of you for the way that you stood and introduced yourself when the adult came into the room. I'm, I'm proud of you for I love you. I'm proud of you. You're good at. Well, you're really good at math. Hey, you're, you're really good at throwing a ball. Hey, you're really good at playing that instrument. Hey, you're really good at playing with your little sister. 
Y'all remember the Heavenly Father? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I love him. I'm proud of him. And he's really good at what he does. Listen to him. But dads and moms, beyond that, they need to hear from us truth about God and truth about the gospel and truth about the scriptures and about God's calling upon our lives as the people of God and mission. They need to hear your prayers over the meal or your prayers when you put them down at night. They need to see and they need to hear. It's time to go, but... Oh, this is scary. What happens at home is more important than what happens at church. And what happens at church is really important. But what happens at home is more important than what happens at church. The spiritual lives of my children, Macy, Molly, and Maddie, will be shaped far more by what happens in my home than by what happens within the walls of this church. And we couldn't be more thankful for the four walls of this church and the people who love them and teach them. But the example that Tara and I live and the words that we say and the leadership that we give to them and the teaching and the training that we seek to shape them will be far more important than what might happen in a Sunday school class or on a Wednesday night. Dad and mom, we need to feel the weight of the incredible opportunity that's been given to us by God. And Satan would love it if you and I would farm it out to somebody else. We better pray, and let's pray for each other, huh? As mamas, as daddies. Let's pray that God would help us in raising up our kiddos in the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for your incredible power. Yeah, Pharaoh had his threats. And Pharaoh had his ideas. But you were sovereign. You defeated him. And uh, the great enemy of our souls, you will crush him as well. Thank you that you are the great and the awesome and the mighty and the wonderful God. Lord, would you help us daddies and us mamas with these kids entrusted to our care to love them and support them, but also to teach them and to lead them in the ways of Christ, to bring them up in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. We'll pray for your grace and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.